if you like a mind-bending story that allows you to predict the outcome, the Friar's Lantern will take you there. Based on research with a bit of social philosophy, the author immerses you into a fascinating exercise where you must make use of your free will to make decisions as the story progresses. Can we actually predict human behavior? As you read through the book, you're going to find out. This is your host of Imagine Publicity on Air, Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com, a boutique social media company that works with individuals, companies, or nonprofits looking for assistance with their social media presence. And not only do I offer full services, but I also offer training to you who may prefer to personally handle your own accounts. So with my my business plug out of the way, um, author Greg Hickey is a former international professional baseball player and currently a forensic scientist, endurance athlete, author, and screenwriter. His debut novel, Our Dried Voices, was a finalist for Forward Review's Indie Science Fiction Book of the Year Award. He lives in Chicago with his wife, Lindsay. I'm happy to have you here today, Greg. Thank you, Delilah. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you for having me. You bet. And and before we get into it too far, I I just believe it or not, this is the weirdest question you've probably ever had. But who stole <laughs> your laptop in Oakland? Um, yeah. So my wife and I were on a trip to Napa Valley uh, five years ago now, um, and we flew in and out of Oakland. And on the way back, um, we were parked in, in and out for lunch. Um, all our luggage was in the car. Someone smashed the window of our rental car, reached in, grabbed my backpack, had my laptop, flash drive, and everything, and, and took off. So I don't know who stole it. Um, eventually, uh, the backpack was recovered, and the Oakland police sent the backpack and a few things that were in it back to me. In Chicago, thing was my laptop and flash drive. Wow. I just thought it was interesting yeah. to dedicate the book to these people. <laughs> well, I'm glad you got the backpack back. Um, sorry about, you know, I, I did you have to, like, start all over again? No, I had backed up uh, an older draft, um, so I kind of worked from that and, and kind of reproduced the edits I had made, but um, there was a little bit of extra rewriting involved. Exactly. So give us a little background about yourself and how how you turned a baseball career into forensic science and writing. Um, yeah, so obviously I have a, some diverse interests. Um, I took a creative writing class in high school, which kind of helped kick off my interest in writing. Um, one of the things that I started there was keeping a, a writing journal, so it's physical journal in which I record ideas for stories. Um, I started that in high school, continued it throughout college and afterwards. Um, I still do it today, although now I usually use um, an online app instead of a physical journal. But um, it's a good place to kind of keep track of story ideas that may not develop until years later. Um, so I played baseball pretty much my whole life. Um, ended up playing in college at a small college in Southern California. Um, while I was there, um, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do after I graduated, but my college coach had contacts 
throughout Europe. He had played and coached um, throughout Europe and set me up with a team in Sundsvall, Sweden for the summer after I graduated. So they hired me to be a player and coach for this team. Um, so I, after I graduated, I flew off to Sweden, um, played and coached on the adult team in Sweden, um, coached a 16 and under team. Uh, so I had basically three practices on weeknights during the week, um, three games over the course of the week, and that was the extent of my responsibilities. So I had a lot of time there, uh, and I used my free time to write most of the first draft of my first novel, um, which is titled Our Drive Voices. That was based on an idea that I had come up with a few years earlier and put down in my writing journal and just kind of set aside. Um, As for forensics, that was something that interested me from a fairly early age. I remember... Probably in middle school, I went to a summer camp where there was a forensic science unit. So we, you know, did various forensic science techniques, um, at least on a sort of limited scale at you know, middle school summer camp. But it definitely stoked my interest. Uh, I remember reading a lot of uh, Patricia Cornwell books about um, fictional stories about a medical examiner. And it kind of continued through high school and the college. Um, in college, I was a philosophy major, but I also took enough science classes that would qualify me to get into a, a science graduate program. So after I graduated and finished my time playing baseball abroad, I came back to the United States and entered a forensic science graduate program, um, completed that in one year, and then eventually took a job as a forensic scientist with the Illinois State Police. Well, it's interesting that you went into writing fiction and and really not really science fiction, but you know something a little further out of the realm of just telling a story um rather than writing like the say for instance true crime, which I think is is at the top of the heap right now and very very popular what why did you choose fiction versus fiction versus nonfiction? Um, I'm not really sure. I, I, to be honest, I just, I really never had an interest to write true crime or to write a kind of straightforward forensic science novel. And, you know, as much as I enjoyed Patricia Cornwell's novels, I never had an interest in writing something exactly like that. Um, and I don't know if that, you know, writing was just kind of a, a diversion for me, something to kind of let the other side of my brain work and, Side, you know, in opposition to the science side of my brain, if I enjoy the creative outlet and the ability to ex- explore different ideas than what I was doing in science classes and in the laboratory. But um, when it came to writing, um, I always preferred fiction and I always preferred kind of exploring different ideas and taking ideas, um, kind of blowing them out and seeing how they could apply to fiction. So, yeah, so I've always been drawn to writing kind of science fiction or utopian fiction in the case of Our Drive Voices or something a little bit different or something with a little bit more um, deeper exploration of an idea than, you know, a straightforward whodunit mystery or true crime story. Well, and you can kill off the bad guys your own way. (laughs) Yeah. 
so the Friars Lantern, how how did you come up with the with the idea and what's what's the significance of the title of this book? So I remember in my sophomore year of college, I had an idea that it would be interesting to write a choose-your-own-adventure style novel, but for adults. Um, I realized later that I was definitely not the first person to come up with this idea. Um, there are many other writers who have written books in this style intended for adult audience, but at the time, I thought it sounded like a, an interesting way to write a story. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the choose-your-own-adventure structure, this was um, series of novels that became very popular for young readers in the 1980s and 1990s. And basically, the stories are told in the second person, so it's written as you do this, you do that, um, you go to the store, you go home, you go to work, etc. So the protagonist is you, the reader. Um, and throughout the course of the story, the reader has the option to choose how the story will continue. You'll get to the end of the page and you might say, you know, if you choose to go into the dark and scary forest, turn to page three. If you choose to go into the mountains, turn to page five. And so the reader will flip to the corresponding page and the story will continue based on the reader's choice. Uh, So I remember having that idea as a sophomore in college and I wrote it down in my writing journal and it just kind of stayed there for a little while. As I mentioned before, I was a philosophy major in college, and as a senior, um, I took a class where we read about this philosophical thought experiment called Newcomb's Problem, which is, on the face of it, a a logical problem where uh, the person has two choices, and there's a predictor trying to predict what the player will choose, and there's some money involved. The problem goes a lot deeper than that, but it's a problem that fascinated me from the moment I heard it, and I remember, you know, walking around campus and posing it to all my friends, posing it to my teammates on the baseball team, kind of playing devil's advocate, and, you know, someone would say, oh, I choose this choice. I would say, well, what about these options? Wouldn't that influence you to choose the other way? And so forth. So I really enjoyed this problem, and eventually I realized that I thought it would be a good way to introduce this Choose Your Own Adventure novel, because the Newcomb's problem is about choice. Choose Your Own Adventure novels involve the reader actually making choices throughout the novel. So the novel as a whole is really about how humans make choices and whether or not we make them at all. And I was able to adapt and sort of update Newcomb's problems to make it more applicable to a 21st century reader. Um, as for the title, the word, the term the Friar's Lantern is a synonym of will-o'-the-wisp or ignis fatuus, which is Latin for foolish fire. All these terms refer to the ghostly light that is sometimes seen over swamp or marshy ground at night. And the light itself results from the oxidation of gases that are produced by the decomposition of organic material. So in folklore, at least, um, terms were used to warn travelers of this ghostly light because it was possible for them to mistake it for someone holding a lamp out there in the marsh or a building with a lamp on in the window and travelers could be led astray by this false light, stray off the safe path, and maybe wander onto unstable or dangerous ground. So in the context of the Friar's Lantern, the title um, reminds readers that they are traveling on a path through this novel, and they have choices about where that path will lead, and it warns readers to avoid being deceived by false ideas and to stay on the true path through the novel. 
You know, I really appreciate that explanation. Reason being is I have a very good friend who was traveling in the low country of South Carolina, which you go through marshes, you go through, you know, very sea level type um, terrain. And she was traveling at night and saw this purple haze is the way she described it. And, it, you know, to hear her talk about it, it was kind of like, okay, <laughs> should I believe this? Or was this a figment of your imagination? And I think she felt the same way too. But but she did find out, I think she called uh, Department of Natural Resources to get some sort of explanation. And it was swamp gas, basically, and the decomposition yeah. of uh, material. So, Thankfully, that isn't the only instance. Um, <laughs> now I can now I can believe that she's not really crazy. <laughs> no, that's well, I've, I've never heard a first person account of that, so that's cool. Yeah, yeah. I again, I I kind of discounted her story, but you know, she isn't one that usually just makes things up. It really did happen, mm-hmm. but we always tried to go back and recreate that and see if we could find this, this purple haze again, but I don't think it's happened. It has to, I, I guess things have to be just right for this phenomenon to happen. Yeah, I would think so. But that's, that's interesting. And then in, in research for this book, Uh, You mentioned before a paper or a theory that you had read. Um, I think anybody out there who has any type of interest in neuroscience is going to love what's in this book. And it's it's quite an interesting topic. But how did you bring all of that philosophy of the neuroscience of decision making into the story of this book? Yeah, so it's a, a question that has kind of many different paths. Um, I guess to start in philosophy, kind of the, the question at the heart of the Friars Lantern is the debate between what in philosophy is known as free will versus determinism. So free will, if you believe in free will, that means that you believe that humans basically consciously deliberate among various options when they're making a choice and they actively select the option that they want to act on. So if I'm choosing between chocolate or vanilla ice cream, you know, I think about which flavor I like better. Um, what, have, what have I just eaten? What kind of day is it? Is it hot? Is it cooler? All those instances could influence me and allow me to choose maybe chocolate or vanilla. Um, but it's quite possible that I could have chosen vanilla. I just, based on my preference at the time, I decided on chocolate. On the other hand, believers in determinism believe that humans don't really make choices at all. They believe that our actions are dictated by causal forces, whether in our upbringing, in our genetics, in the circumstances of the time we make the choice, and so forth. So when I'm presented with chocolate or vanilla ice cream, what I end up selecting is not really a free choice on my part, but it's based on, you know, my taste preferences, which are based on my genetics not chosen by me. It's based on the environmental circumstances at the time, um, which are not chosen by me. Um, And so what flavor I end up choosing is based on all of those external factors and not on my conscious deliberation. So if I choose chocolate in the sense of determinism, if I end up going with chocolate, it's not the case that I could have chosen vanilla 
all the causal factors would always lead me to choose to select chocolate in that particular decision. Um, and there's been a lot of research done on this in neuroscience, uh, and especially fairly recently. So experiments in neuroscience where they would put someone into some sort of brain scan, whether it's an fMRI or whether it's electrodes, why is your person's scalp, um, pose questions to them or ask the person to make decisions and then see what kind of brain activity occurs, when it occurs in relation to the decision, um, and what that says about whether the person is actually consciously deliberating and freely choosing, or whether there's some brain activity that precedes their decision and dictates how they're going to, how they're going to act. Um, so to start, I was definitely reading a lot of philosophy papers about free will and determinism. I was reading neuroscience papers about um, brain activity and predicting decisions. Um, and then the story kind of also, the story of the Friar's Lantern diverges into different paths. So there's a long thread of the story where you're involved in a criminal trial and you're a jury on this, this murder case. So I was reading um, some law, uh, some courtroom procedure stuff, asking my friends who are lawyers about, you know, does this sound right? Would this actually work? Based, um, drawing on my own knowledge as a forensic scientist because I will have to testify in court fairly often as a result of my um, analysis, um, drawing on my experience in court to frame these courtroom scenes. And then there are also various offshoots of the story. So looking at computer chess and how computer chess works, um, how the algorithms work to make quote-unquote decisions for the computer chess player looking at something called the Turing test, which is basically a test of artificial intelligence to see if a um, computer can simulate human intelligence in a conversation. So lots of various um, research on how minds of different sorts, whether human or machine, how those minds work and how they're similar and how they're different. Well, do you think that we have the technology today, and, and I think, I already know the answer, but that we can, through using these, the MRI or however this is measured, can we truly predict human behavior in advance? I think in many cases, yes, and there's been research that's won this out. Um, in the Friar's Lantern, I'm positing a, a prediction algorithm using an MRI machine um, that is over 90% accurate. I don't think there's actually any technology that has, is that accurate. Um, but it, but the use of technology at least makes it more plausible that we could have this kind of predictive capability. Um, in the original Newcomb's problem, the author posited, you know, the predictor is God or a super intelligent alien, um, kind of these sci-fi or metaphysical beings that we're going to make the predictions, but I think it's more interesting and more plausible to look at the technology that we actually do have and then apply that to the, the prediction scenario. Well, with the, you know, with the decision-making process that humans go through, which I'm, I don't, I'm not a scientist by any means. I'm just kind of guessing here, but I would be, I would say that the decision-making process that could be predicted would kind of work. That process would be the same in everyone, or would it be different? I, I think there is research that shows that 
when humans make a decision, certain part of their brains are active, and this is pretty consistent from person to person. What actually goes on in the brain during that decision-making process, I think, is open for debate. So, you know, MRI or other brain scan could determine that, okay, this part of a person's brain is is lighting up at this point in the decision-making process, whether that occurs, you know, slightly before or, or slightly after the person says, announces their choice, um, kind of differs a little bit, but there isn't really any research to my knowledge that says, okay, at the time of the decision-making process, here's specifically what's going on in the person's brain. Here are kind of the ideas that are being presented. Here are the neurons that are firing in sequence and sort of the, the very detailed mechanics of what happens when a person makes a decision is still, um, I think, undiscovered and it's up for debate both in neuroscience and in philosophy. Well, in, in your research and, and just kind of expanding on this a little bit, um, has anything shown up where either outside influences would affect that decision-making ability or would there be like a reaction to an unconscious memory? Um, I don't know about unconscious memories. Um, there was a study done in probably around 2010 by researchers at UCLA. Um, this is mentioned in the book. And they showed subjects a video promoting sunscreen use. And they had them in an MRI machine while they were doing, while they were watching this video, took an MRI scan of their brain. And then after the subjects watched the video, the researchers asked the subjects to predict how frequently they would use sunscreen over the course of the following week. The researchers then used the MRI data to make their own predictions about the subject's sunscreen use. Uh, so a week later, they brought the subject back in. They asked them to uh, record how often they had used sunscreen over the previous week. And the researchers found that the MRI was actually more accurate in predicting what the subjects would do than what the subjects actually believed about their, their own behavior. So I think that's an example of using a, a stimulus, in this case, the video about sunscreen use, um, to influence a person's behavior, and then also using MRI or an MRI brain scan to make predictions about that behavior. Well, I, you know, let's talk about, let's go back to the book. This is, this is fascinating. We could just, I could listen to all of these explanations for a long time, but um, let's go back. I know, it's go really back. a radical. <laughs> Well, it's it's just very interesting to me, and I think it's yeah, you know it's it's a field that's opening up, and and probably more things about our subconscious is going to be coming out. I think the research is there, and I just think it's fascinating. But how you know going back to the choices of behavior, um, especially you know throughout the book, and, and you explain different different consequences of those choices and how do you relate that to what's going on right now like with the COVID-19 pandemic the choices that people are making um, and what those consequences would be do you think again this could go back to the question of is it predetermined destiny or is it free will um, in in those terms um, the novel was published a few years ago so COVID-19 wasn't even on our radar at that point. Um, but I think that's 
that's a question for any decision. And you make a good point about, you know, COVID-19 where individuals are choosing, you know, how to respond. Um, governments are choosing how to direct public health and how to direct uh, behavior of people at large. Um, so anytime that we're discussing, you know, what people should do, we have to, there's sort of a presumption that people are free to choose among various options. And, you know, based on neuroscientific research, based on some philosophical ideas, that may not actually be the case. So if you have people, you know, saying, well, I, I want to make free choices about how to respond to this virus. I don't want to be beholden to government recommendations. I want to be able to decide what's best for myself. I think it's still an open question about whether a person like that is actually deciding for themselves or whether they have uh, a mindset that values free choice, values freedom, values personal liberty, that's based on their genetics, their upbringing, um, the people they've encountered in their life. And I think a big issue with COVID-19, especially our response to COVID-19, is the question of um, who is responsible for what people are doing, for um, our response to it, how we're balancing um, the needs of the economy and needs of people to maintain their livelihoods. And, you know, I think what's going to come out of this is that certain people are going to be blamed for their response, certain people are going to be praised for their response. And that blame or praise is always based on an assumption that people are free to choose how they respond to the circumstances in front of them. Um, so, you know, if, if someone makes a good choice, they're praised. If someone makes a poor choice, they're blamed. Um, you know, we give awards to people who make good decisions, and we punish people um, often by imprisoning them or executing them if they make bad decisions or criminal decisions. So a lot of that is based on the belief that people are free to choose and they're responsible for, that action, for their actions. But if determinism proves to be true, then that kind of gets called into doubt. People may, may not be responsible for their actions. They don't deserve praise or blame. When we talk about criminals being guilty of a crime, I'm not sure we want to use the word guilty. Um, we would say that you know, a criminal committed a crime and there was something in the criminal's brain or their upbringing or their genetics that caused them to commit the crime, but they're not necessarily at fault. They couldn't have chosen, they could not have chosen otherwise. Um, so we, we can't blame them. We maybe shouldn't punish them. We can try to rehabilitate that criminal or otherwise influence their psychology, but calling them wrong, punishing them, blaming them is not the right approach. Uh, a, a whole another way to think of things, and you know, again, I appreciate you expounding on this because it's it's very timely for what we're all going through today. So, okay, back to the book. One thing I like to ask authors when we do an interview is your writing process. Do you just um, do you sit down every day at a certain time and write so many words? Are you very rigid and scheduled? Or you just kind of write it down the way you see it and feel it? Um, and my process has changed a lot over the course of the last several years. Um, 
So when I wrote my first novel, um, like I said, I, w- I had a lot of time on my hands. I was working basically a part-time job in another country um, where I had most of myself. And I could sit down from the com- front of a computer and just, you know, write as much as I could fit in. When I started working on the Fire's Lantern, um, I was in graduate school. I was working a part-time job. So I still had a fair amount of time on my hands, um, but my time was a little bit more limited. And I had to... Um, be a little bit more creative about how I was using my time in order to produce a novel. Um, as I work on my third novel right now, I now have a full-time job, so I'm basically trying to write during my lunch breaks at work, um, on weekend, weekday evenings, or on weekends. I'm just trying to, you know, fit in as many words as I can during those free times. Um, and I think my approach to writing also depends on the story I'm trying to tell. So for the Friars Lantern, we actually talked a lot about all the research I did about the kind of challenging structure of the of writing a choose your own event, choose your own adventure novel, um, the importance of getting certain philosophical and scientific ideas represented accurately in the book, but also telling a compelling story at the same time. So for the Friars Lantern, I spent a lot of time outlining various threads of the story. You know, this is how I want to present an idea. Here's how I want um, the story to go in conjunction with that idea. I can present the idea correctly, but also in a compelling way for the reader. And then I spent a lot of time um, structuring the novel itself. So the challenge of writing a choose an adventure style novel is that instead of, you know, one plot line that runs straight through the story, at various points, the plot line splits into two, and then each of those plot lines splits into two again, and, and so forth, and the plot lines merge again, um, and it becomes more of a, a story web than a single story plot line. So it, it, it can be challenging to kind of keep all those plot lines straight, um, not only in terms of what's happening in the story, but where should I put each scene within the story? So if you're choosing between option A and option B, um, does option A come immediately after the choice? Does option B come immediately after option A? If you continue with option A, where does that part of the story fall in chronologically in terms of its uh, arrangement within the novel? Um, and so forth. So um, in addition to outlining specific themes within the novel, I drew out an actual map of how I wanted all the, the plot lines to go. So it started at the top of the page very neatly, you know, one storyline splitting into two, or two storylines splitting into four, and so forth. And then by down at, at the bottom of the page, there were swirls going all over the place, um, lines crisscrossing, everything blending together, and got a little bit messy, but it was enough for me to figure out, okay, here's how everything's going to be laid out, and here's how I'm going to structure the novel. The other problem I'm, was. I, I was just going to comment that I'm not a writer, but I just can't even imagine taking on that task of, of the way that this was structured. It, it, it is very challenging. I, I Again, I've worked with a lot of authors and just getting the word on the page sometimes is the struggle, but I can't imagine with the, with the different plot lines and the different outcomes and the way that you did this was very skillful, I might add. So, you know, readers don't be scared off by this because it really adds to the story and it really adds to the way the book, um, 
ends. So, and now go ahead. Well, thank you. And, and hopefully, um, as I'm describing this as, as sort of convoluted process, hopefully it comes off a little bit more straightforward when readers are actually reading the book and hopefully everything flows nicely for the reader and they're able to, you know, make their way through the story pretty easily. Um, and everything that, you know, was a little bit challenging for me is kind of going on behind the scenes. Um, but what really helped me was also reading other choose your adventure novels and kind of mapping out their plot structures and seeing how they had structured everything. Um, and that kind of helped give me a little bit of a template for what I wanted to do. The other challenge was when I was actually writing the full draft, um, I knew that over the course of the edits and as it went to press and it was put in layout for print and for an ebook, um, all the page numbers were going to change. And page numbers are obviously very important in a choose your own adventure style novel because, you know, there's choices that say you need to turn to this page or this page. Um, so I knew that if I put, you know, turn to page 35 in my first draft of the novel, that 35 was going to be a different, completely different page when that novel finally went to press. Um, so what I did was I labeled all the scenes with three letter codes and then put those in as, as, the choices. So instead of turn to page 35, it would say turn to page AAA. And I would have page labeled AAA in my draft. And then made it easy for me to just search and find the corresponding scene in my Word document. And then finally, you know, when I went to press, we went back and replaced all those three letter codes with the appropriate page numbers. So that was really helpful in me just kind of keeping everything organized for myself as I went about writing them out. Yeah, it it sounds very um uh what is the word I'm trying to come up with? Very difficult to keep track of everything. Um so let's tell readers where can we find you? Where can we find you online? Where can we find the book? Um let's let's sell some books here. Sure. Um so my website is Greg Hickey, my name is Greg Hickey and then writes W R I T E S Com. Um, readers can download a sample chapter of the Friars Lantern there. Um, I also wrote a short prequel to the Friars Lantern. Um, that book is called The Theory of, Any- the Theory of Anything. Um, readers can download that book for free on my website as well. So both of those are a good introduction to the Friars Lantern if listeners are intrigued by this interview. Um, the book is available also on Amazon. Readers can search and find it there, and there are also links to my website as well. Um, Wonderful. Well, I've got to say, this has been quite an eye-opening interview, more so than a lot that I've done, simply because I think the subject matter um, is more than fascinating. And I totally enjoyed reading the book, and the style that it was written was very different than anything that I've read before. Um, and I wish you all huge success with it, and I hope that readers will take time to, if you you want to do something for an author, if you like this book, or even if you don't like it, leave a review. Let the authors know so that they can continue to make you, the reader, happy. Um, 
it, it's probably the best thing you can do, and it only takes a few minutes out of your time. So let let your favorite authors know that um, that you appreciate what they do, that you appreciate the time they've taken to create this story for you, your entertainment. Um, to me, that is very, very important. Um, as we, as we close out another interview again, Greg, I want to say thank you so much for taking your time to be here today. And I can't wait, um, for the next thing you're coming out with. Why don't you quickly go over what's next? Sure. Well, Thank you very much, Lila, for having me. Um, I'm glad you liked the book, and I really appreciate your very, very insightful questions about uh, the novel itself and the issues it raises for us and in contemporary society. Um, so my next book, I'm actually pushing, putting the finishing touches on it as we speak. Um, it's titled Parabellum. It's not a choose your adventure novel, so it's a more straightforward story. Um, a literary crime novel about a fictional mass shooting incident in my hometown of Chicago. So this story follows four main characters in the year leading up to this attack and investigates how and why each of them might have been involved in the attack. Um, I'm hoping to have it published this fall, um, but again, if readers are interested, they can keep tabs on it through my website. Great. Do you do updates on your Facebook page as well on your new book? I do, yes. Uh, on Facebook and Twitter. Great. I'll be definitely following there. I, this new book sounds just as fascinating. So everybody go to Greg Hickey Writes, W-R-I-T-E-S dot com. Learn more about Greg, his writing. The Friar's Lantern is the book that we discussed today. I highly recommend it. Um, you can get it through the website or you can get it on Amazon. Um, so as we all go out into this uh, big bad world today, remember one thing that I, to me is probably the most important thing that we're facing in uh, the time of COVID-19. Everyone's making their own decisions on how to handle this uh, situation as a pandemic all over the world. But one thing is tried and true. And that is be kind to each other always. 